0: This is the Roaring Elephant podcast for the 30th of August 2016, a podcast about Apache Hadoop and the surrounding ecosystem for anything working with or investigating big data. My name is Dave and here is my co-host, Jon. Hello, Dave. Hello, Jon. So, faithful listeners out there, we are once again making a little tweak and a change to the, uh, the layout of this podcast. Keep the feedback coming in. Uh, So rather than having the what we've been doing over the two weeks and then uh, sort of news and then going on to our main topic, we're kind of blending things together a little bit. So we're going to have the intro and news where we have something interesting to say and uh, then we're going to split into uh, the news and then after that a second section with the core topic. Sound good to you, Jan?
1: Yeah, well, let's just call it an iteration and evolution of the podcast structure making it That's easier it. on ourselves as well, which is also a good thing. <laughs> very much so, very much so. Um,
0: so a quick shout-out to Pitt, a uh, long-time listener, we understand, based in Wisconsin, USA. Um, thanks for your mail and your comments. Uh, he was suggesting a name of the uh, the new section, The Elephant Never Forgets. Uh, unfortunately, we've blended it into the intro. So, uh, yeah, sorry about that. Oh, good uh, suggestion, though. It was a good suggestion, and uh, thanks for that. Uh, you know, I did want to call out a couple of things that have been going on um, for anyone kind of following the the news and the release cycles in the uh, in the Hadoop world, specifically in the more in the HortonWorks world, I suppose. Um, HDP is uh, on the uh, the peak of its release; it's due out very very soon. So, there's been lots and lots of updates in the world of uh, things like Ranger and Atlas, and doing lots of deep dives and workshops and sessions around all of that sort of stuff so it's new, new cool tech is about to flood onto the uh, uh the hungry paws of people looking to get their hands on the tech so it should be good it should be very good
1: yeah, I mean, maybe it would just be worth to just spend some more time on the new things being added in there, even though it is just for a specific uh, distribution then. Uh, still, the Hortonworks and the Cloudera distributions are the biggest ones out there. They kind of set the tone, so when one of those uh, has a new big release.
0: Yeah, I think we should do. We should probably do a new release episode when it, when it comes out, and maybe yeah. kind of hit
1: on some of the top topics. Yeah, well... That is if something interesting is in there, of course. If it's just an iteration, then it's not that interesting. But if, as you said, new stuff is being added, well, I'm interested. New stuff is good. New stuff is good. All right.
0: So that's it so far. Let's hit some news for the
1: week. Uh, Shall I go first? Well, we just discussed, and I have more items than you do, so let me go first. You do. All right, away you go. (laughs) Okay, we'll start with a small one, and it's only tangentially related, perhaps, but uh, Linux turned 25 a couple of days ago. Very cool, very cool. I do want to uh, make a note of that, because it's a very big part of this whole Hadoop and big data ecosystem, of course, without Linux. I don't think this would ever have gotten off the ground at all, and just a testament of Linux to the whole idea of open source. It's great.
0: Yeah, it is without a doubt. the. I mean, the Hadoop ecosystem is awesome, don't get me wrong. But, you know, my my original uh, my original background is all very much uh, Linux and, and the open source environment that, that sprung up around that. So, yeah, it, very, very cool to see. Have you been following a lot of the articles around it and the interviews and all that kind of stuff?
1: Yeah, I've been looking a bit at the history and all that. And the one thing which I particularly like is when you read the an original announcement mail from Linus, there's actually a typo in there, so there's still hope for me.
0: <laughs> uh, it's it's brilliant. It's really good news. And yeah, yeah, yeah. it is, you know, Linux itself underpins so many um, so many environments, so varied. Everything from, you know, huge data center environments to tiny embedded devices, you know, running essentially the same OS is just it's just cool. And yeah. uh, I think if you see the the rise and rise of linux and the spread of it across you know what looking back on it sort of only only a relatively small number of years ago you know 10 15 years ago you know it was nowhere near the amount of penetration that it had uh, throughout the the market that it does have today so i think it's it's grown incredibly well it's become you know, just completely per- pervasive in my right.
1: view yeah, and also the lately, I mean, the last year, even it's become less of a threat to the existing big companies out there. I mean, copying from Microsoft, the whole idea of what Microsoft loves Linux, it's more just a marketing slogan. Yeah, sorry, but. The whole idea that Linux has become a friend of big established companies like an IBM, like, uh, I don't know, SAP, Hortonworks, uh, Microsoft, uh, everybody out there, really. There used to be a time when there was a really fierce battle going on. I mean, we do know that Microsoft, let's say the pros and the cons here, said that uh, Linux was a cancer. Yeah. But that kind of maybe hatred through, we don't know what this thing is, so let's be scared of it, that's now gone away. It's become a... De facto standard out there mostly, and it's just part of the toolkit now, and that's great.
0: But it, it's it it is like the juggernaut, though, isn't it? I mean, you either get on board and embrace it, or mm-hmm. or get run over by it, because you can't you can't fight it. It's just yeah. it's too big, it's too pervasive, uh, and it will. Uh, it will just run over you and leave tire tracks so
1: yeah but the whole fact that the juggernautism came from the fact of its pure flexibility really everybody yeah. can play with it yeah. it's, a, it's a good kind of juggernaut because people usually associate juggernautism <laughs> is that a word i don't think so <laughs> but with i don't know big money or big pressure groups and stuff like that but this is just pure uh, grassroots upswell from from the common people let's say it's it's great
0: absolutely it's a it's a happy friendly juggernaut that yes. will still crush you if you get in its way
1: <laughs> <laughs> yes i've read one of uh, one of the articles i read was how linus was talking to nvidia when their drivers weren't uh, up to snuff <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah that's been an interesting space in fact that space continues to be kind of yeah. a little
1: bit fraught but there we go hey, it's working well at the moment so and again, awesome. Linux these days is a lot less on the desktop and more in the server space, anyway. So, yeah, yeah,
0: I think uh, just not because it's become less successful in the desktop, just that the everything supporting. Um, you know, supporting things in the background has just take has just exploded. Yeah, you know, IoT, etc., etc., etc.
1: Yeah, I would still say that Linux on the desktop has a way to go. I mean, on a server point definitely juggernaut. You can't get away from it. On the desktop part, though, I mean, on a business side, I can work with Linux only. But if I want to do stuff at home, uh, recording this podcast, for instance, yeah, the whole sound system in Linux does not allow me to do what I want to do. So there's still some stuff there.
0: Yeah, I must admit, I, I really do miss just having Linux. I mean, I've worked around the paper cuts that I consider OS X to have. Um, you know, it, It's fine, but I don't actually believe it's any more stable than Linux. I don't really believe, for a lot of things, there are exceptions, as you mentioned, mm-hmm. but for a lot of things, I don't really believe it's any more or less usable. Part of that is, you know, I, I've been using Linux on the desktop, both at home and at work for, um, I don't know, 15 years or so. So it it, it was just something that I, I'd, uh, I'd evolved alongside. But,
1: yeah, yeah,
0: it's, anyway, it's an interesting space. happy
1: birthday to Linux and a big shout-out to the whole open-source community behind it. You guys rock.
0: Yeah, thank you. Keep doing what you're doing and we'll keep using it. <laughs> Definitely. Your turn. Okay, so... Uh, what i'm uh, going to be talking about is the new data the new science behind customer loyalty so this was uh both a blog post and a infographic um, around um, you know how to think about customer loyalty uh when you're um, when you're using big data and I just thought it was um, it's a relatively simple um, you know, blog article, you know, just a couple of pages long sort of thing, but it goes into, you know, how to think about your, um, you know, customer loyalty, the kinds of things that are interesting or important, um, the kinds of things that your customers are thinking about and that you need to be thinking about the kinds of data sources that you need. Um, and they talk about the, uh, the, the ease of customer experience. So effectiveness, ease and emotion, you know, making your customers uh, feel something positive about you, hopefully, or about your products or about your company, Um, making it easy for them to feel good uh, and and easy to interact with your brand and making it effective, you know, making sure that that's part of, um, you know, how they're consuming your products. Um, There's a little bit of it Kind of falls into some of the uh, some of the stuff that Forrester have done, and some other stuff according to some studies that McKinsey have done around um, you know different customer analytics, um, and you know some of the stats mentioned is that uh, you know business users intensive business users of customer analytics are nine times uh, more likely to clearly outperform their competitors in terms of customer loyalty. I think you know. You know, we see this every day. Organizations are looking for that edge, and that whole 360 degree view of a customer. You know, a big chunk of that is around uh, establishing customer loyalty, brand loyalty, uh, understanding what makes for uh, a good customer, and how you can kind of identify that. So, yeah, really, just a nice article. Um, from a company called Principa, which is uh, based in South Africa, I think they're a, a consultancy company. I must admit, I didn't go into that very much. Um, but there's a there's a second link, uh, which I which is, I guess it's following on from the same blog post, and it's the the same or similar kind of information, uh, and it's it's actually called the Who, What, Why, Where, When, and How of creating a data driven customer loyalty or rewards program and it kind of goes through so it, first of all it's a, it's a really nice infographic i'm a sucker for uh, nice infographics and this one uh, you know goes through the the sort of the things that you would you would look at on those categories so sort of the why why are you even you know doing this in the first place you know the where where are customers actually uh, engaging with your brand you know in person voice print digital um so that's about that's kind of the 360 view side of things so the what uh, what data is available how and it goes on and on um it shows the various different data sources that you should kind of consider using some of which would be internal to your uh, organization some of which you may require uh, external data to uh, take a look at but i just thought it was really nice it's a nice nice article Uh, if you're just starting down this journey and thinking about customer loyalty and it's interesting to you then uh, yeah have a read
1: so am i reading this right that this is about using the big data to get the personal connection with the single person again
0: yeah, yeah, or yeah. It, it, or at least uh, understand, um, you know, what your customer's uh, picture is of you as an organization. And, you know, then obviously, the, okay. the next iteration is to, you know, obviously improve on that. Okay, so it's more
1: of a self-reflection exercise
0: yeah yeah but then the the next the next part of that is the action on well i've got this information now what do i do with it so i do best use it yeah yeah
1: personally myself okay privacy is still an issue still something to think about but the fact that i'm getting more and more advertising that's something i actually want to see it's still advertising it's still annoying but it's better to have things that i'm interested in than i don't know baby clothes do you I not have like baby. baby clothes? I don't have a baby. I don't wear baby clothes. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, you heard it here first. Yon does not wear baby clothes, just in case you were wondering out there.
1: Yeah. About Dave, you have no information, though. Let's keep it Yeah, that. yeah I'm keeping that to myself. <laughs> All right. Next article. It was you. Uh, okay. Another small one. I just want to throw it out there anyway. Uh, Hadoop has also had a release to 7.3s out. Mm-hmm. it's a minor release i looked at the release notes not that much interesting stuff in there the couple of things i want to pick out is that apparently the nfs gateway isn't dead it got a number of supportability improvement and bug fixes in my experience the nfs gateway except for being a dropbox isn't really used that much no. still there's some effort going in there Second thing is Yarn gets some inf- some improvements. Uh, it has more REST API. That's good. But also the fair scheduler supports dynamic hierarchical user queues. User queues are created dynamically at runtime under any specified parent queue. I know from my time at Hortonworks that people were kind of trying to mix the two schedulers in Yarn to get this kind of solution in there. And apparently now it's in there. So that's a good thing. And the one thing, which was a very small footnote, but I personally thought was very important or very interesting, specification work related to a Hadoop compatible file system effort, or HCFS as its uh, acronymed. Mm-hmm. That's uh, an interesting one. Because I must admit that HDFS has gotten a lot of uh, color dialects out there. If you're using uh, the NAS stuff from EMC, what's it called again, Isilon. Yeah. Or if you go into clouds with uh, S3 or the WSB from uh, Azure. All of these things are promised to be HDFS-like, but nobody really knows what that specifically means. And apparently now there's some work going into actually kind of putting a... a, a called a brand or a description or some kind of, I don't know, prescription what a Hadoop-compatible file system should be. So is that kind
0: of a, almost a certification exercise? Um, it's not you know, there a yet. Full, a full
1: specification yeah. that you can test against? That's. I think that's where they're going to. It's a, as, as it says, it's specification work-related too. So they're trying to formalize a couple of things. And in the end, probably it's going to go towards a stamping, this is a certified ACFS or not. But if the, if it's going to go to that length, I don't know. We'll see how it happens there. But I do know from my work at Microsoft with Azure that it's something of an issue where you have uh, the, the the block storage things and the data lake storage and whatever kind of storage solution in between. Does this work on Hadoop or not? I would really, really much like to give a customer kind of a sheet with check marks: yes, no, yes, no. And this seems to be a point in the right direction there. So that's uh, that's nice. And I'm kind of thinking that this has been inspired by a more and more important role that cloud is playing in the whole Hadoop infrastructure. Because what I've also been noticing in the last couple of weeks is that when I'm browsing around for interesting articles for the podcast or just for my normal work uh, days, all the big guys are going to cloud at the moment. I'm going to put a couple of links in the in the show notes about this, but I found uh, links from Hortonworks, from Cloudera. Uh, SAP has just uh, purchased Altiscale to do Hadoop in the cloud as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're all kind of moving in that way. So the splitting of the compute and the uh, storage components becomes more and more of an issue, and I think that's why these uh, HCFS efforts uh, get there. Uh, why are they doing this at this moment? Why it's coming up now?
0: Yeah, I mean, it would make sense for... You know, once that standard gets defined, that, that that would be something that, for example, the ODPI would be mm-hmm. you yep. know, certifying
1: against. Yeah, 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 yeah. So. If nothing else, it gives all these vendors something to work towards. Because at yeah. the moment, if you're trying to set up something that should integrate with Hadoop, you kind of pick and choose what you like to do. And then you have something that's 50%, 70%. Yeah, but what? Part of it does it, does it, does it do or does it not do? If yeah. you have this kind of description, this is what should be to have the HCFS stamp, then it gives you a nice target to work towards. Yeah, yeah. No, that's good. Um, it's a footnote, but for me, yeah. it's an interesting one. Something to keep an eye on. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Good stuff. Over to you.
0: All right. So my next link is uh, five great charts in five lines of R code. Uh, so, for those of you that have been listening for a while, you know probably that I'm not really much of a programmer. Um, I can, you know, I can take code, I can read code, I can probably hack about existing code, but writing stuff from scratch is really. Uh, not my bag. Um, however, these are so simple in terms of just very small snippets of R that, um, that, ha- that create some really quite interesting uh, visualizations. So, you know, there's, um, there's one sort of just plotting, um, plotting various locations uh, against an open street map. Um, there's one that's uh, plotting, you know, the last six months of a particular share price um, and, and graphing that. There's another one that's showing uh, unemployment data um, in a, in Atlanta, um, and there's one that is uh, showing um, sort of correlating some uh, point scores and uh, other. What's the other? What's the correlation they're looking here? Point opacity and point size.
1: What is that? You're asking us. We don't see the yeah, little looking at. Yeah,
0: I am I asking you. Um, <laughs> so actually, that's not clear what that. But it's a, essentially it's a, a correlated line graph um, and just a very very simple visualization. But produced in a you know very small number of code uh, of a very small amount of code, and then the the final one is um, a sort of a, a temperature graph, but a, a box layer temperature graph showing yeah. um, sort of various different zones and just the ability for R, which is something that I've never really spent a great deal of time looking at, to. Do what I can. What I consider looking at these to be relatively complex visualizations. Um, doing them in such a small number of lines of code is actually, I, I find, I find astounding. So, if you're if you're looking or interested in R, there's, uh the article has um, uh, a YouTube clip, the code samples, the actual um, you know, outputs from them as well. And uh, it comes from the uh, the Revolution Analytics folks uh, from their blog. So okay. yeah. So, do you need to use studio for that? Uh, I don't think so, no. I think you can just do it,
1: um, it an, using... Can you, use a, I don't know, you buy a notebook for that or something? Yeah, I think so. Okay. Because a lot uh, of these uh, visualization things kind of depend on uh, behind-the-scenes frameworks that the IDE are using are offering... So if they don't need all that, that's very nice.
0: Yeah, I mean they they basically use um, uh, let's see, they talk about uh, Quantmod, DiGraphs, ggvis, and CorePlot um, to actually get these things
1: up and running. Those are libraries that. Uh, you yeah. Can use. Yeah, 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 yeah. But R is definitely very multifunctional in that aspect. I've seen it before. Myself, I haven't done much R either because I don't come from a statistics background. Neither do you, I think. Yeah. No. But, um, uh, yeah, don't think, uh, Python is all there is or Scala. Uh, R does a lot of stuff as well. Yeah. Yeah. And now with the revolution R people, uh, actually making R studio and R server multi-threaded and just like Spark easily, uh, paralyzable across multiple servers. Uh, yeah. It also gets a very big place again in the big data because you might say that R has kind of been pushed to the background a bit uh, by Spark because of the easy yeah. distribution of uh, of spark uh, rdds and stuff but uh, now the r stuff is uh, definitely coming back yeah,
0: yeah. A, a resurgence as it goes through that uh, parallelization exercise so mm-hmm. i think yeah i think it'll be interesting to see how that uh, how that evolves over the the next kind of 12 18 months
1: uh, yeah, well, I mean you 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 now have the uh Hadoop uh premium on uh Azure, sorry, which is Hadoop plus Park plus R Studio. Mm. So it's out there as a product already. So yeah. there's a lot of uh push behind the technology at the moment. A lot of interest.
0: Yeah. Alright. So that's that's me. Over to
1: you. Okay, my next thing is something I uh, noticed this morning. Um the last episode, I think I explained that I was doing some work on image recognition and image detection, having a mm-hmm. picture and just identifying everything in there. And yesterday, that was on the 25th because we recording this on the 26th, uh, Facebook actually open sourced their image recognition AI. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm very interested there uh, It's I, I haven't gone into much depth yet as I said I just found the article yesterday it's a blog post from Facebook so I'm going to link it in the show notes and they've actually open sourced three pieces of, 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 algorithms called deep mask, sharp mask and multipart net, which specifically do what I'm looking for, detecting the objects and making a nice outline around them. And the thing, I think it's the first time I see it like this. Usually when object recognition happens, you kind of get a square box around the object. Yeah. The bounding box. Yeah. In this case, they really have the shape of the image. If I've got a picture in front of me here from the blog. They have dogs and a guy holding the leashes. And the dogs, you see really see the outline of the dogs with the head and the, and the legs and everything. And the guy's wearing a hat, and it's nicely traced around the shape. So it looks like a step forward again. And it's totally open source. It should be usable both on images and on video. So it's definitely something I'm going to look in and see if I can uh, have some fun with this. Nice. Facebook actually uses it internally, they say, to uh, scan for offensive content. Oh, okay. Thing. And a second use case to see it here is a kind of video Braille where blind people can... Touch an image, and then the the touch screen or the the the, the, so the software behind it can tell the person you're now touching a dog. You're now touching a person holding a leash and stuff like that. Do they, do they use it also
0: for the, I'm guessing they must also use it for the, um, you know, tagging of people within photos on Facebook? That's a lot easier. That's just face recognition. Yeah, yeah.
1: This this stuff is, uh, face recognition is machine learning. That's just train your model and that's good enough. This has to be some kind of deep learning. This needs to be mm. a neural network one step further down. yeah. So um, personally, I'm very interested. And for other people in out there that are looking at uh, deep learning and image recognition specific, it's an uh, interesting thing. It's coming from Facebook, so it must be good. <laughs> now, the guys do a lot in open source. They share a lot of stuff. And usually what they share, they've thought about this. They've, they've thought it out. <laughs>
0: Yeah, yeah, no, they're they're very very good contributors to the uh, to the big data world and to open source generally. So, oh, very cool. So that hopefully will accelerate some of your projects if uh, if that proves
1: useful. Uh, yeah, it kind of depends on how you have to use it if it fits in the whole ecosystem of what uh, my customers were intending to implement there. But uh, it's definitely interesting uh, information. It's definitely it's, it's uh, especially the fact that it's not a bounding box, but really the shape of the object. That um, yeah, it's interesting to see how they do that. Definitely. All right. So, over to you.
0: Okay. So my last one, actually, as it turns out, is uh, similar, I suppose, to the first one in terms of it, the area of uh, interest. But This is um, using big data to create value for customers, not just target them. And it, it follows on from you know, actually your comments as we wound up the, uh, the end of that, uh, the first section, which was around, you know, you're receiving, still receiving advertising, but it's actually, it's almost advertising that you're almost interested in. So that's obviously better than, uh, you know, adverts about baby clothes for you. Uh, I'm still not sure about that, but uh, we'll let that slide. Um, so this is about, uh, so this brings up kind of an interesting point, which is, Let's say that you're trying to uh, accurately predict the next best action. Now, um, that will give you what the, you know. What this article talks about is that will give you like a short-term tactical advantage. Um, and it, but it does overlook one uh, inevitable outcome, and that's when every competitor has also become equally good at predicting the next best, you know, action essentially you know you've you've lost your advantage you've you've com- you you've competed away your sort of the profits from that uh, that particular engagement so you you've got this kind of almost unwinnable short term arms race where everybody's trying to um, you know trying to act more ac- more accurately predict their competition the the next best action for individual customers that in the medium to long term, you know, everyone's going to be equal in that space, assuming that they are, you know, in all investing in in big data and you know have similar people and all that kind of thing. So, what uh, what this article is talking about is it's not saying that you shouldn't try and predict and capture the next next spec's action, next purchase, uh, you know basket recommendations whatever but that don't expect you know significant returns uh, from that for the foreseeable future you know certainly if your competitors are lagging in that space then there are definitely still rewards to be had but you know it that's probably not going to be that's not going to build your organization um you know, significantly in the future So this is kind of turning this round um, into not just targeting your customers, but actually doing something that's actually going to deliver them value. And so it talks about, um, you know, that value being uh, a variety of different things. So uh, types of information that will sort of reduce their costs or reduce their risk. Um, So, you know, providing more more granular options that are more interesting to them for those reasons. Um, prior to, uh, sort of filtering information, or at least manipulating the display of information to your customer base. You know, if, especially if you've got a very wide, very um, dispersed. Um, set of products or content, so think like netflix there 's thousands and thousands of things you could watch. How do you make sure that you show the the most interesting things or the things you think are most interesting to that person um, you know more significantly um, to make sure that they reduce the amount of time they 're spending looking at that so for example, um, if you 've got information. On uh, the example I use here is um, a startup operating in Africa, which is turning um, data consumption and data billing on smartphones into uh, a credit rating. So that's that's converting, you know, one uh, very simple form of uh, consumption information into something that actually delivers value to the customer in a completely different area. Um, and then the third one is around um, aggregating others um, other organizations data with their data um, and with the data that you already have around that customer so companies selling um, you know farm farming products so seeds fertilizer pesticides um, actually collecting data from weather services um, from uh, geolocation services, from uh, soil databases, and you know, from information about the farmers, to actually determine um, which seeds, which fertilisers, which pesticides would more, uh, you know, would be better for their particular land. So, you know, all of these are about becoming more data-driven organisations. But none of them are really about, you know, targeting customers for better marketing. So it's just a, a different view of using big data with customers, less less big brother in terms of targeting, and more focused on uh, delivering value.
1: Isn't it also, if I look at it at a macro level, marketing becoming honest, and less said marketing telling us this is good. You need this marketing knowing what we need and giving us what we need. Yeah, and that's almost
0: um marketing doing what marketing should have done done, all
1: the way along yeah Yeah. Yeah. i think you're right i think you're right Uh, of course the uh privacy centric uh view is gonna say yeah but that means you need to know a lot more about your customer does the article go into that aspect at all? It doesn't
0: really, but hmm. then I don't know. I'm not I'm not convinced that, that is the the case. I mean mm-hmm. if you take that the the last example around uh using other data sources and combining that with stuff they already know, like they already have um like the address mm-hmm. or yep, of, yep, of yep. that customer, they have the, the area. It's very easy to look up uh, you know, what land that person owns, so you have yeah. the, the kind of you know the particular area that uh, that that customer yeah. uh, is likely to be planting in so it's not even as if you're requesting more information you're just joining it yeah. that information with you know other external data sources whether soil databases your own product catalog to to recommend um you know what might mm-hmm. be what might be a better solution for them
1: yeah, so and you're doing the joining yourself. It's, uh, I've made, give, made the choice of giving this company my address because I want yeah. to ship stuff to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and they just take external data and add that to my address information they already have, and I have given them permission to use to yeah. give me even more value, saying that you're living in the very dry area, so you need this kind of pesticide or fertilizer. Exactly, or exactly. So from that point of view, there's no Bigger security risk for privacy information, as long as those companies, of course, do it all in a uh, what's the correct word in English, uh, doing it the correct way, the way they're supposed to be doing it. Yeah, there's a word for that. I forget. Probably. <laughs> Listeners, send it in. I'll use it next time.
0: <laughs> okay. Yeah. 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 So uh, I think it's. Um, we see this time and time again. We saw this in at the Hadoop summit with uh, various conversations there with people. Just you know, thinking about you know, there are lots of things you could use big data for. Um, you know, be ethical with the way that you're doing that. That's the one I was looking for. Well, there we go. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I think this is a, a really nice uh, explanation of you know.
1: Yeah
0: thinking about it ethically.
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it's not really new, is it? Because the only reason that Google has my data is because they have Google Maps. Yeah. Google Street View, I couldn't live without it anymore. And, yeah. I mean, uh, Bing also has a Street View. All of these map things, these companies, they've given something that a lot of users find very useful. I mean, nobody's buying GPS assistance for their car anymore. You just use a phone, right? Yeah, absolutely.
0: Or you plug it into your head unit if you've got... <laughs> Apple CarPlay or yeah. Android
1: Car or Android Auto or whatever it's called. But it is a way that these companies were able to you know, kind of make us give our information about where we are every moment of the day. But it gives a lot back in return, and I'm, I'm
0: okay yeah. with that. Yeah, I think just, just the the thing that I always tell people to remember is if you're using something and you're not paying for <laughs> it, what you, the how you're paying for it, is by giving that organisation your data, and as long as you like realise that and accept that, and you're fine with that, then that's great. But you know, there's there is no such thing as that uh, mythical free service. No. They're really not just giving it to you for free they're giving it to you because they use your data they use your data in a number of different ways to improve their service to improve everybody's service uh, but they're also using it for things like targeting advertising and all kinds of other weird and wacky wonderful things so just just be aware of it
1: in the end they have to pay their people their wages and this is how they get their money right that's right that's right if, you, if you're right. not paying for it you're not the customer you're the product that's that's thing, right?
0: it that's exactly <laughs> it Back, Back to, me? to you. Yeah. Okay. Uh,
1: my penultimate one. I like that word. Is a article I found. It's dated from the fifteenth of August by Felix Gessert. I don't know the man, but he wrote a pretty lengthy article called the NoSQL Databases, a Survey and Decision Guidance. Ooh. And the reason I like it very much is it's a pretty long one. I mean, if you, re- if you read it, it's half an hour of your time, at least. Mm-hmm. But and what most of these articles do is say, you've got Mongo, Cassandra, uh, HBase, and Couchbase, and whatever, and this is good in this one, this is good in that one, this is good in that one. Mm-hmm. It's all very nice, but when I'm developing something, when I'm thinking of an architecture, I don't necessarily know what those things are yet so this guy what he does is they start from describing what NoSQL is which is not bad a lot of people have different opinions about that and then telling you how you can differentiate the things you need in your hypothetical situation and it's not a high-level discussion. It's, pretty, it's relatively deep. If you've never heard about the CAP theorem, then don't try to read this. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but they're going to CAP and why certain uh, NoSQL approaches are better suited for one or the other approach. They also have something called, I've never heard about it, the PACELC theorem, the calc, however you want to pronounce that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And that's the thing where the cap doesn't really... Cap looks at what is happening when it's wrong, when something goes wrong. When when your partitioning breaks, then do you keep uh, consistency or availability? It doesn't look, in normal operations, the trade-off between latency latency and consistency and that's what that packalc thing does. Apparently it's an existing thing, I hadn't heard about it yet, they explained it very nicely out in there. It actually stands for, uh, just for people who haven't heard about it yet, cap theorem is uh, capacity uh, consistency, par- sorry, consistency, availability and partition tolerance and the pac stands for um, in case of a partition, so if the network breaks, there's an availability consistency trade-off, else in normal operations there's a latency consistency trade-off. Yeah, sounds like gibberish, but they do a nice uh, job at explaining all that. And then near the end of the article, at that point only, they go to, okay, now you have decided you need availability, you need this, you need that, you need that. They have a nice little uh, float chart there, a decision tree, but then ends up with you need uh, Hadoop, you need uh, Cassandra, you need this. They also say this is only a limited amount of uh, options there. There's much more out there. So just see this as a recommendation. You need this kind of product. So you need a key value store. You need a document store. You need a white column store. So it's a very nice in-depth thing. And it's been a long time since I've seen an article that goes so academic in it and not just go start shouting the buzzword of the, of the day. Yeah. So it's a very deep, very nice thing. has nice graphs in there as well. And at the end, a nice uh, overview of all the options out there. And I think 80% of the uh, m- uh, usual suspects are in there. So for anybody looking at uh, big data and NoSQL, it's a definitely it's a, a good read.
0: Fantastic. I mean, that sounds like um, similar to the, what we talked about in the last episode around the streaming engines, but much, much u- more useful, much more
1: in-depth. Yeah, I mean, we kind of fell to the buzzword uh, bingo uh, problem a bit. We just named products and compared the products. These guys go from the, let's forget the products for for an instance, but just look at what do you need to solve this kind of problem? Well, then these products can help you achieve that. No. Nice. So it gives you first a theory about how you need to look at this. And it's a, it's kind of a, a, a topsy turny way of looking at things. Instead of going HBase is good in this, MongoDB is good in this, Redis is good in this, make a choice. It says yeah. these are the things you should look at. And once you've looked at these things and decided what's important for you, these are the situations. These are the solutions which you can actually use in there. So it's uh, pretty lengthy, but pretty technical. It's not super technical. It doesn't go into programming at all. It stays on a the theoretical uh, level. Yeah, yeah. But uh, it's uh, it's a very nice read.
0: Fantastic. I look forward to it. Yeah, the link will be in the show
1: notes. All right. And uh, over then to you again for the last item. Yeah, very short one. And I just wanted to put this in there. Uh, maybe you have seen it already, but uh, the Apache guys, they've put a new page on the website. Yes. Click on it so I can see it in front of me. And it's called the Committer Criteria. Criteria for becoming a committer at Apache. It's kind of a, a site, a page where they kind of explain, if you want to become a committer, these are things you should do. And basically, they should have just listened to our episode 11 when we talked to Venkatesh about <laughs> <laughs> becoming a committer because they, they stole our episode there. That's all I want to say about it. No, just kidding, just kidding it's it's out there so if you if there are people out there thinking about uh, joining uh, uh, apache as a committer they go listen at to that episode 11 and, first uh, definitely <laughs> but uh, this it's a nice overview there
0: <laughs> cool
1: cool excellent stuff all right
0: that it from you uh, yep that
1: was all all
0: right that's it from me too so in that case we'll be back after the break to talk about Hadoop security at least the first part of our Hadoop security conversation. See you then.
1: And welcome back. We hope you enjoyed the last uh, last episode, no, the last section. And now we're going to get deep into the main subject for this episode, and that's Hadoop security. Now, Hadoop security is a very large, very broad, multifaceted uh, object, of course. So we're not going to do everything in one episode. Uh, I know we've become a fan of very long episodes, so we're going to try to improve our lives and make them a little shorter for you. And that's why in this episode we'll be focusing entirely on the subject of authentication, which is basically the first part of any security layout. Would you agree, Dave? I would. <laughs> <laughs> you so, might elaborate on that a little bit. <laughs> uh, I would,
0: definitely. Is that is that not good enough? No? Okay. Uh, so no. yeah, I mean, the, the initial authentication... Uh, so first of all, what does authentication mean? Authentication... Is proving that you are who you say you are, um, you know, within a a system context. So that could be, um, you know, when you log into a system. If you're just thinking about a, a simple, you know, Linux system, you log in with a a username and a password. If you're logging into the thing directly, um, if you have um, you know, two factor authentication, that's another method of of authentication where you have. Uh, you know a username a password and then a, a you know maybe a token of some description um and so these are all methods of authentication now primarily when we're talking about um authentication from a hadoop perspective what we're talking about is uh for the most part kerberos as the underlying um, you know, authentication uh, engine, I would guess, and then uh, the integration of that with something that is a, a user store and user and group store of some description, and typically that's uh, Active Directory or LDAP. So, when we're talking about authentication or um, or you know, a secure cluster or an insecure cluster, um, if your cluster is not Kerberized, um, Hadoop by default is insecure. What this means is you can, uh, log in as user Yon, um, to a Hadoop cluster, um, just using Yon's username as a, an example. You may not have a user called Yon on your particular Hadoop cluster.
1: Well, you should anyway, um, but go ahead.
0: You probably should. Yeah. And, and give Yon the access credentials and he'll be very careful with it. Honest. Um, so if you log in as a, a, a user that does have some level of access to an unsecured, non-curberized Hadoop cluster, um, you can actually just pass the, the username of a user you want to impersonate as a command line parameter to a typical um, HDFS call, for example. So if I'm an unprivileged user, I shouldn't have access to a certain path in HDFS, um, on an insecure cluster, I can just pass the uh, the name HDFS into that as a command line parameter, and uh, that will elevate my privileges to the HDFS user. Um, this is obviously, uh, well, far from ideal in many
1: cases. Mm-hmm. Yeah, basically, what you're explaining here is that Hadoop does have some authorization built in you can actually say this directory you can use shown commands change ownership change mode commands to say read writable by user hdfs only yeah but since it doesn't have authentication built in i can just tell hadoop yes i'm hdfs trust me and yeah. it will not challenge me it Will not ask me to prove that it'll just believe me and give me access as hdfs user yeah
0: and in fact there's we'll uh, we'll probably link to a. Uh, uh, a presentation on Slideshare that goes through just actually showing that as a as a series of commands, yeah. so you can see unfortunately just how easy it is um, to uh, be caught out with that. So authorization is really um, should be the first step, and we've talked a little bit about this on previous episodes, but I think it's it's worth going over. One of the questions that I at least often get is. Oh, we're just doing a proof of concept or yeah. we're just kind of rolling out our first project. Do we really need to do, uh, do we really need to Kerberize that cluster from the very beginning? Uh, you know, can't we just apply that security later? Um, do you want to handle
1: that particular one, Jan? Oh, well, i definitely seen the question. That's, uh, that's a definite yes. Um And the thing, I guess there is the edge case of having a server beneath your desk where you're playing around with it. And it's not attached to any kind of network. I guess in those particular cases, you might say, yeah, it's just for testing, development, have fun with it. The problem with it is, specifically for the development part, if you're developing stuff without Kerberos installed and then you want to put that on a Kerberized cluster, there's a good chance your solution won't work. Because Kerberos is a pretty deeply ingrained thing, and your application will probably need to be able to work with the Kerberos system to to do all the authentication ticketing behind the scenes. So by not doing it from the start, you're kind of shooting yourself in the head to start with, well, in the leg, perhaps. And the other thing that I usually use to convince uh, customers is, if you specifically for the Hadoop cluster, if you start with a Kerberos Hadoop cluster, which takes a bit of work it's maybe we've got more depth uh, later but it, it's not just flipping a switch you need to do a couple of uh, manipulations to make it curbize it's it's something you have to do it's not fun but you have to do it but once you've done it on a very simple cluster which means the curbization of that cluster is also simpler any component you add after that gets curbized automatically because the Hadoop cluster knows it's curbized so if you're adding storm to this thing well, it needs to be kerberized too, it won't be able to connect to HDFS or whatever. So, by doing it early on in the system, even if it's still in the pilot stage, you kind of take away a hurdle that might become a bottleneck in the future.
0: Yeah, very much so. And if you look at um, sort of an environment that has already been kerberized, it's something that uh, you know your users are used to. It's just part of their their ordinary. Um, sort of method of operating the cluster if you have an environment that is uh, insecure and then you go and retroactively uh, apply Kerberos to it not only will you have um, you know issues around dealing with um, you know maybe things that have broken due to the application of Kerberos things that uh, don't work in exactly the same way but you'll also be then you know Causing your users to operate in a slightly different way and people don't like change. It's just uh, human nature. So if you have that thing secured from the very beginning, you're already, you know, making sure that your, um, your user base is operating in a clear and safe way from the very beginning.
1: Yeah, it's one, one fell sweep. You teach your community to use Hive or Spark or whatever you're using for the Hadoop cluster. And at the same time, you tell them, yeah, but you need to use this Kerberos k-init command or whatever you need for your specific application. And it's just in one education knowledge transfer moment. You don't have to do it. Now we teach you this. And now we teach you to do the same thing, but differently, which will always be harder. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely yeah. right.
0: So yeah, the short answer to that particular question is, yeah, really... Go ahead and uh, make sure that your environments are Kubernetes from the very beginning. Yeah. It, it will just it will make it will make your life easier. It will make your users' lives easier. Um, yeah, we just we just recommend it
1: from uh, from the very beginning. And don't make the misconception that uh, of saying that it only contains an important data at the moment anyway, because of the flexibility of the Hadoop cluster it will grow, people will add stuff, that's what it's built for, and at some point you will get sensitive data on that cluster. It's not a question of if, it's a question of when.
0: Yeah, very much so. And these environments uh, will continue to grow and evolve. So it's a really good point, actually. From from the very beginning, um, you may not envision this to be a particularly sensitive environment, uh, but that will evolve and that will
1: change. Yeah. And also another article I read the last couple of weeks I didn't mention before, but was about uh, how POCs were gone with the dinosaurs, that you don't have time to do a proof of concept anymore, a proof of value. These days with the things happening so quickly and the tools becoming so flexible, it's less and less often that somebody builds an environment to test it and then throws it away and builds a production cluster. A lot of the times proof of concepts, proof of values are replaced by pilots that just grow and become evolve into the production cluster. Yeah, so very if, much so. Very much if so. If you really want to go to POC, with the POC way, you just lost two months of time, basically.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, the I would absolutely say that that's, um, it's not only is it the way that things are going, but it 's the only way that the majority of organizations can can actually keep up to pace with this yeah. if you think about the um, just the variety not just the variety of data that you're keeping within a data lake but also you're keeping um, you're retaining data for retention periods that are significantly longer probably than anything you 've ever. Had before. You're not just storing data for a number of months, but potentially a number of years, potentially even a number of decades. Mm-hmm. So you have to think about this. This isn't just a you know a transitory data mart, where the data gets flushed through on a regular basis. This could be uh, you know the core of your company in terms of the core of its data.
1: Yeah, and thinking about security at the start when it's still a simple cluster base dividends in the long end, in the long run. Yeah, absolutely. That's right. That's right. Okay.
0: okay. So, in terms of um, in terms of that side of the um, authorization, you know, Kerberos is at the very core of that. Um, but then you've got a couple of other systems that will typically uh, be fairly tightly coupled to that. So, those are the user and group stores um, that are typically used. So, Yes, you could just go ahead and use uh, local users. Um, You know, if you're a a very small, you know, 10-man band type company, then I guess there may not be that much point in going up and setting up an AD or an LDAP environment for all 10 of your employees. Um, But, you know, the the majority of organizations are using uh, some method of, Um, identity management platform that almost certainly is is going to either expose an LDAP interface or is going to be uh, integrated into an existing Active Directory environment.
1: Yeah, it's kind of inevitable because if you're just using local usernames, uh, you can't when you role-based or attribute-based authentication afterwards. Yeah. And any decent-sized organization, when somebody new joins the company, you don't want to go into every little system and add them as a user. You just want to add in a central user repository and give them a role that allows them to have access to certain things. It makes life a lot easier. And definitely for the uh, ABAC, for the attribute-based uh, authentication, being able to separate the the, the, the assignment of the role to a person by HR and have the the, the, the I don't know the PII responsibility at the data officer having those roles split that's very useful.
0: Yeah, I mean, the majority of the the systems that we'll be talking about throughout the uh, security episodes all integrate with, you know, a combination of uh, Active Directory or LDAP Mm -hmm. um, and inherit both user and group information from those data sources. So, you know, having something like that that's centralized that, you know, these security uh, tools and environments can can sync up with is is really essential, if nothing else for for just keeping the overall admin and management down to a reasonable level yeah. I, I always tell people, try not to do things that are specific for individual users. Yeah. try and do things at a group level so you can have things that are inherited you don't you don 't really want policies that go all the way down to the individual
1: user level mm-hmm. if you can help it. Yeah, a single-user policy, that's not a policy, that's an exception. And yeah. exceptions are always bad.
0: Yeah, yeah, very much so. Very much so. Okay, so I think we've no. probably covered the the Kerberos side of things. As to yeah, well, you that. say
1: Kerberos. Why do I need Kerberos? Isn't there anything else out there? Well... And why not? <laughs> not really. I mean, it tends to be... It's, it's the default,
0: um, and it's the most available. I mean, if you're using... Active Directory, Active Directory itself at its core is a blend of Kerberos, LDAP, and um, essentially DNS. Uh, and there's a few other technologies in there, but that's that's what it provides. Um, and Kerberos itself is just, it's an established standard. It's well-supported on uh, Linux platforms, and it's, it's consistently used everywhere and anywhere that requires very strong authentication. So it is pretty much the de facto standard for
1: authentication. Yeah, but the question I'm getting uh, often is, I've got this single sign-on solution here. It's based on x Can't I use that?
0: So it's interesting you mentioned that. There are other, I know, that's there why I some, do it. <laughs> there are, so there are some developments in that space for single sign-on environments. Um, uh, SAML is another one that I yep. hear fairly commonly. And I think we'll we'll kind of touch a little bit more on that as we get through to um maybe the perimeter based security that's going to be coming up in an upcoming episode but that's definitely um that definitely is evolving now and becoming more prevalent we're seeing you know single sign-on engines that are uh, becoming more active in this space but in many cases what they're doing is those things are just triggering Kerberos in the background
1: Yeah, but the biggest issue with single sign-on stuff is that it still needs a person at a screen, at a keyboard, to type a username and password at some point in the whole thread. And the whole thing with a Hadoop cluster is a lot of stuff is automated. The HDFS daemons are talking with your Nimbus uh, controller for Storm, and not necessarily after a person typed in a password. So these services, these machines, need to be able to authenticate towards each other without a human interaction. And yeah. single sign on at the moment with SAML or EXART can't do that. There's one uh, effort I know of, which is called Shibbolet, which is trying to make that work. But they've been trying that for the last couple of years. And it's just very annoying to try and develop something like that without having a coded password in the script somewhere, which, of course, yeah. is a big no-no.
0: Yeah, that's, that's, that's bad, by the way. Please <laughs> don't do that. Yes. <laughs> uh, if you are doing that, stop it. And uh, possibly but, go and read a book about security.
1: Okay, Mister Dave, and if I'm using scoop.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, no. So the other when you when you start to cover Kerberos, there are a few other things to consider. So one is you can um, directly connect your AD uh, or LDAP and Kerberos environment. Uh, to your Hadoop cluster. That is one option. That's a good Um, option
1: if you're a big company with a lot of people because...
0: I wouldn't necessarily say it was a good option, but uh, okay. Why do you think that's a good option?
1: Nah, I was being sarcastic because you're going to tell us why it's not
0: a good idea. (laughs) Yeah. I see. Trying to derail me like that. Fine. Be like that. See if I care. Okay. So typically, that's not necessarily a great idea. Now, the reason for that is, as Jan was talking about earlier... We're not just talking about user access that fires off uh, authentication uh, pro- processes. Actual system processes running will also trigger uh, the same things to make sure those processes are who they say they are. And because if you're not careful, you can put a very significant load on your AD infrastructure. Infrastructure. What we typically see is people putting something in between their AD environment and their Hadoop environment. Now, this it is a little bit more complex. It is a little bit more complicated, not by much, but just a little bit. So one of those things is to establish uh, an MIT Kerberos uh, KDC in between. Now, this has a couple of benefits. The first is that um, that environment... You can actually set up your local service users just within the MIT Kerberos environment. You don't necessarily have to go and pollute your AD environment with core Hadoop service users like the Hive user, the HDFS user, so on and so forth. Um, I personally think that this is, uh, you know, this is a far better way to do it um, because, for the most part. AD is really more focused towards that, that user side of things. Organizations don't really like, in my experience, adding you know, service users that aren't tied directly to users into their AD. But it really is required when you get to a, um, you know, a Hadoop-style platform, you know, just a Linux-style platform generally.
1: Yeah, definitely. Having the two trust-related uh, authentication stores, if you like, also allows the Hadoop administrator, which is probably not the person that's adding new people that join the company to the Active Directory or LDAP uh, repository, it allows that sysadmin to still be able to add a new uh, product to the Hadoop stack. I mean, if you want to install Hive, you need to have the Hive user in there. If you have one single repository, then the sysadmin has to contact probably HR to create a pseudo-employee called Hive, which doesn't make sense. By having a local MIT uh, or whatever Kerberos you have there, you can just have this person be an administrator in this little subdomain for the Hadoop cluster, have him add his own service accounts, as you call them, which is a good name. And again, having a separation of uh, roles and uh, uh, responsibilities, which works very well.
0: Yeah. Now, when you set this up, if you're looking to set this up yourself, um, you will need uh, some input from your AD team um, or, you know, the people responsible for the AD environment. So you need to establish a trust between the Active Directory environment and the KDC. Um, you know, you still need to establish that relationship. Even if you're directly connecting, then you need to establish a trust between the AD environment and, and uh, the, the, the cluster itself. So I would say go that extra step, put the MIT uh, KDC in place that will, you know, gives you that additional flexibility. There are other options um, and, uh, you know, so one of the things that uh, I see occasionally is people using something like uh, free IPA in between um, their, their sort of their uh, AD environment and their clusters. Um, but Uh, you know, that adds additional complexity over just a Mm -hmm. simple MIT Kerberos KDC. It does add more manageability, so maybe the the trade-off there is worth it. Um, And
1: again, it's what you use already. If you already have a free API server running around somewhere, please use it. Don't set up a second MIT next to it. But if it's just for the Hadoop cluster, then MIT is a lot leaner, a lot uh, simpler to set up.
0: Yeah, definitely everything here, as always, uh, should follow the KISS principle. Keep it simple, Servers, (laughs) (laughs) Silly. servers <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, really just making sure that um, you know, from the ground up you 've built and thought about this from uh, you know a simple authentication process mm-hmm. it's it 's not that complex you know if you 're looking at um, if you're looking at uh, something that uses Ambari, so any of the uh, Pivotal Time Environments or, uh, or Hortonworks, then that does a, a pretty good job of um, ensuring that whether you're using MIT, KDC or uh, LDAP, that is cleanly integrated. Things like Knox and Ranger uh, also cleanly integrate into that. And those principles are being passed around um, to other components within the Hadoop ecosystem as well, so you can make sure that the credentials, um, you know, once that once you have that Kerberos ticket, that is typically passed around to make sure that authentication uh, is consistent and continues throughout.
1: Now, securing a Hadoop cluster is not something you do every day as a operator or sysadmin or devops of a Hadoop cluster. So these, uh, th- this specific area is something i quite often advise my customers to seek help go to your partners who do this more often than you do because your partners your uh, distributors or whoever your consultant uh, firm is they usually set up a cluster define a workload and then go to the next cluster say so they do this a lot more often than you will ever do so you get some help make sure it's done properly so you don't have any issues with it afterwards
0: very much so and you know this is this is a conversation around around in fact around i would say consulting resources generally mm-hmm. everybody has very smart people on site uh, i have no doubt that uh, people from organizations listening to this podcast you know have incredibly smart people working within their infrastructure and operations side of things and very few people would Ever kind of dispute that, but the difference is that you know your very smart people have probably seen maybe two clusters, maybe five clusters, maybe if they're really lucky ten clusters of any real significant size and 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 usage. The kinds of people that you will hopefully get in to help you and guide you through this kind of process will have potentially seen hundreds of different clusters of varying different sizes scopes through various different industry verticals and should be able to guide you far more quickly and far more effectively uh, through this particular part of the journey it's just it's so important to get the foundations right it's it's really worth making sure that you do engage uh, experienced partners through this particular part I, I, yeah i couldn't agree more i think this is one of the areas yes it is it's not as complicated as it used to be but mm-hmm. it's still one of the areas that I, I still see people getting getting tripped up on or yeah. confused on especially if if they, especially if they're new to Linux or things like that mm-hmm. uh, and maybe dipping their toes in that particular uh, area for the first time as well as the big data area mm-hmm. then you know definitely seek help from an experienced organization that can guide mm-hmm. you through it
1: yeah, because it's not about the technology being totally arcane and undecipherable. Not at all. If you everybody can read and smart people can figure it out, it's about this thing called best practices. And the thing with best practices, you get those by having a lot of practice. Yeah, just making sure you don't forget the little things which you might not find in the documentation you're reading. That's right. You read and, and,
0: and also this. This uh, yes, Kerberos has been around forever, but the the whole ecosystem is continually evolving as well. Mm-hmm. So you need to be pretty careful. And actually, this is this is pretty consistent across the whole the whole big data. And in fact, the whole open source movement. I would say you can find tons of documentation out there. But uh, you just need to verify that it's still relevant to the versions you're using, the things you're integrating with, and all of that sort of things. There's a lot of outdated, archaic, and slightly broken documentation out there on the internet. So just be a little bit cautious on that front.
1: Yeah, especially when you're connecting to third-party solutions, front-ends, uh, next steps in the pipeline, the data pipeline you set up. All of these things need to have the same level of libraries, versions, protocols. And again, your partners, which are helping you installing that that pipeline, they will be able to help you very well with that.
0: Yeah. All right. So hopefully uh, this wraps up
1: our conversation around authentication. Anything else to add, John? No, I think we pretty much gave uh, all the information we can on this. Authentication is fairly limited in scope, let's say. Uh, we've already touched on a couple of other things. Uh, that you mentioned Ranger and uh, I think you mentioned Nox as well. Uh, we will be getting to more depth on those in subsequent episodes. So our plan is to have a number of episodes on security in the next couple of uh, months to uh, totally round out this uh, this subject absolutely okay so that's all we have time for this week we hope you have enjoyed this serving of bite-sized big data we will be back in two weeks time in the new episode possibly about the other parts of authorization authentication or maybe something else entirely we'll see when it gets there until then, please do go to www.RoaringElephant.org where you can find more information, send us your questions and please give us a five-star review on iTunes. Even though Dave still doesn't like iTunes, it does help other users find us. If you don't think we deserve the five stars, that's fine too, but let us know why. Give us feedback so we can improve this podcast for you. You can always send us an email through a podcast at RoaringElephant.org with any thoughts, comments, criticism or other feedback. And that's all I'm going to say, because I'm fumbling my words now. So my name is Jon. And my name is Dave. And we look forward to talking to you in two weeks time. Goodbye. Bye.